All right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Zoe Community Church. In case you don't know me, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you all for being so flexible with us as we just changed plans last minute and are having to stream uh, online exclusively because of the weather outside. Uh, we pray that you are being safe and warm. We're thankful to be able to worship from the comfort of our own homes. We pray that this will be <clears throat> a time of encouragement, even though we are not able to gather together in person. We hope we'll be able to see you face-to-face again next week, Lord willing. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. Today we're taking a break from our study of 1 and 2 Samuel. We wanted to take this week to talk about a particular topic, one that I think is especially appropriate for a few reasons. It's the topic of serving. Serving God by serving one another. <clears throat> In our Samuel study, we've just seen how from his birth, Samuel's whole life was devoted to the service of the Lord. He was dedicated by his mother, Hannah, for service to God, and as a weaned child, he was sent to live at the temple thereafter. And 1 Samuel 2, two excuse me, says he ministered before the Lord. He grew in the presence of the Lord, and he grew both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And so here was Samuel, a man whose whole life was devoted to the service of God and his people. Secondly, we've reached some junctions in our church life recently where we feel it's, impro- it's appropriate to remind the church of the value of serving. If you aren't, to inspire you to consider doing so, and if you are, to encourage you to excel still more. You see, Zoe is approaching our fifth anniversary this May. And in fact, next week, February 21st, marks the fifth anniversary of our soft launch where we started meeting in the building that we're in today. And in these five years, there are two things we've never had to preach about by God's grace. We've never had to preach about giving. We've never had to preach about serving. And God has supplied all our need in both those areas in full abundance and beyond, without us ever having to goad on the congregation by addressing these topics directly from the pulpit. And yet, as our church grows, I think we're all aware that we lose some of that church plant feel. In fact, five years in, I don't think we should be calling it church plant, uh, church plant so much as we have been, as much as just a young church, a small church still. Um, but I think it could help to remind us of some of these things. You may have heard of the 80-20 rule, which tends to be the norm where only 20% of the people end up doing 80% of the work. Now, thankfully for Zoe, that hasn't been the case yet. But our church has been growing at an unprecedented rate, thanks to the Lord, with dozens of families visiting us ever since we uh, came back from quarantine. And in fact, just last week, we finished uh, our membership class with the largest uh, number of uh, prospective members ever. And we praise God for that. But add to our situation Eric's sabbatical, which just started on Monday, and anticipating the squeeze of all the work he normally does on to Jesse and myself and the other ones who are, are helping fill his, in his role in the time. And with Jeff He out with an injury, that's why Jesse was leading worship today. Thank you, Jesse. But then there's also the new work of setup and cleanup and sanitation procedures that we've had to adopt during COVID. Then we introduced the, the children's ministry, reopening it again after a few months, which has always been our greatest need for servants. And now we've reopened community groups, this time with more groups than ever to try to keep them small and intimate, and yet we still maxed all of them out with five or six families. It's a good problem to have. Now add to that our church uh, site search right now, which we're looking for a place to maybe rent and, and find a, a time we can meet in the morning, maybe from a school. And if that does happen in the fall or next year, it's going to require a lot more commitment, a lot more manpower to transport, set up, and tear down every week. 
Now, so many of these things have happened in conjunction that have caused us to question on multiple fronts and occasions whether we're going to have sufficient help, especially with so many people already wearing so many hats. Now, that's not to say that we're scared that God is not going to provide our needs. God has been so faithful to this church in so many ways, as I've already mentioned, without fail. And you all have done so much. You've been so committed to this church, so faithful to your service. And we wouldn't be here if so many of you didn't wear all those hats and make so many sacrifices and do so many things for the church. And so we thank you. These are, as I said, great problems for a growing church to have. But if we want to stay the course, we also need to make sure we check our bearings every now and then. Imagine an airplane is flying and its heading is only off by one degree. But by the time it gets to its destination, it could be miles off course. So it only helps us if we occasionally pause, check ourselves, and refocus so that we can continue moving forward faithfully. That's why around New Year's, Pastor Jesse preached a two-part mini-series from 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2 to talk about church culture at Zoe. We said that God's church is to be centered on the Word of God and that God's church is comprised of the people of God. Today is sort of a part three of that series, where we will continue in 1 Peter, now in chapter 4, to answer the question, what if the people of God gather around the Word of God, but are not doing the work of God? What does the church as a body need to be doing to function properly? What does God intend for His church to look like? As we say in membership class, commitment to a church is not just commitment to a doctrine, and not just commitment to attend. It is a commitment to living in community, not just loving the word, not just being present with the people, but being involved, to be faithful in knowing, loving, walking with, investing in, discipling, correcting, submitting to, and serving one another. And so we find ourselves in 1 Peter 4, we'll be in verses 8 through 11 today. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Right off the bat, Peter starts this section of scripture with the phrase, above all. Above all. Now this passage comes right toward the end of his letter, and he's in the midst of discussing suffering and trials, excuse me, and the impending end of all things. And in the midst of it, he stops and he says, all right, here is the most important thing. This is it. This is what really matters. And what Peter gives are three one another commands. Three things that the Christian church is to do together. And with each statement, he gives the what and then a how. That will be our outline today. Three one another commands that show us the heart of serving. Three one another's that if we follow them, will instill in us a servant's heart. The heart that God desires. The first one another then is love. And what it shows us is that love is the heart behind everything we do. Love is to be a defining part of our identity as Christians. Love is to be our primary motivator, the source of every good work. Verse 8 again. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
You see, if we're going to talk about serving, we need to start by talking about love. Because serving begins not with our hands, but in our hearts. Serving doesn't start with external actions, but internal attitudes. That's why God hates lip service. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, says the Lord. No, true service starts inside of us, with who we are, who God has redeemed us to be. Serving is what we do only after we understand who we are in Christ. I know you know this, but the Bible truly makes much of love. If you study God's word, you see again and again that love is to be the hallmark of the Christian. Peter here says, above all, love. Likewise, Paul says in Colossians, above all these, put on love. The two greatest commandments of all, which are together the foundation of the entirety of God's law, are two commandments to love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Earlier this week at the dinner table, we had this conversation with our three-year-old son, Ezra. <clears throat> he said, Mommy. And Steph says, Yes, Ezra. And he says, I love you. She says, I love you too, Ezra. And he said, Daddy. Yes, Ezra. I love you. He said, I love you too, kiddo. And then he goes, Muy muy, which is what he calls his little sister. She's 11 months old. She doesn't answer, but he goes, Muy muy. I love me. Now, of course, a three-year-old loves himself. No one needs to teach him that. No one needs to teach a 36-year-old to love himself. But when God commands love your neighbor as yourself, God is making the presupposition that we all by default love ourselves. And he turns it around and says that love, that self-love we all naturally have, is the degree to which you, as a Christian, must love others. Now, to a sinful, selfish heart, that is impossible. But thankfully for the Christian, when we are saved, we are given new hearts and are indwelt and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the evidence of spiritual rebirth and God's regenerating work in us. Earlier in this letter, Peter had told his readers this. Flip back a page or so to 1 Peter 1, 22. 1, 22. He had written, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Sincere love, Peter says, can only come from a heart that has been born again. True love, in other words, is a love that comes from knowing and obeying and responding to the truth. The truth of God's word, that we are sinners in need of salvation, that we are saved only by the free gift of God's grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle John corroborates this in 1 John 4. He says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. We love because He first loved us. Peter and John are saying the same thing. That is, our ability to love one another is grounded completely in our conversion and in nothing else. We can only love because God first loved us. And we can love with a pure heart because God has done the work of purifying our hearts. He has transformed us, giving us new hearts, new desires that are now able to love sincerely and earnestly and selflessly. We have been saved by love and we have been saved to love. You can flip back to chapter 4. Peter doesn't just tell us to love, but he tells us how. 
How do we love? Love one another earnestly. Earnestly. The word for earnestly in Greek is ektene, which literally means stretched out. Ek means out. Tene is where we get the English word tendon. So it's muscular, stretching out, extending yourself. This outstretched love reaches towards others in compassion to meet their needs. Ektene, elsewhere in the Gospels, is the same word used when Christ stretched out his hand to heal the leper. It's the same word that is used when Christ stretched out his hand to raise Peter from the waters when he was sinking in the waves. This outstretched hand of love is a love that is compassionate, that considers others and extends to their aid. It's also a love that extends and stretches to cover transgressions. Verse 8 concludes, Since love covers a multitude of sins. An outstretched love is a forbearing love, a love that is patient with the sinner. And an outstretched love is a forgiving love, a love that is gracious and ready to reconcile with the repentant and extend to cover a multitude of sins against you. God is our ultimate example of such an outstretched love. God's love is the love that forbears with us. God's love is the love that ultimately forgives us. God's love sacrificed his only son, whose own arms were outstretched on the cross, where he died to pay the price for our sins. On the cross, God's love stretched out to cover our multitude of sins. And this same freely forgiving love that we have received from God is the same love we must now extend to one another freely forgiving as God in Christ forgave us. This is the radical kind of outstretched love we are called to. And that is what will distinguish us as Christians. If we love one another earnestly, deeply, truly forgetting ourselves and living for the sake of others, that will be the indisputable evidence that we belong to Jesus and that we have his spirit within us. Jesus himself said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, I think Zoe can be commended as a church of servants. Many of you deserve much appreciation, recognition, and rewards for how many hats you've worn, how frequently you've served in the last five years, how selfless you've been. Thank you so much. But I also realize, and as an elder can easily understand from experience, how faithful service can quickly devolve into routine, duty, or obligation. There are definitely times and tasks where I serve joylessly and even mindlessly, and if that's the case, definitely lovelessly, because I'm only thinking about the process or the program and not the people. And I think that can easily be the temptation right now, five years in. The church could just chug along on its own operational steam of people doing their jobs. But like I said, if we're going to stay the course, we got to take the time to stop and check our bearings mid-flight. We need to take a step back and think soberly about what we're doing and why we're doing it. We're definitely a church of servants, but are we actually a church of love? Our church is marked by having a lot of work and a lot of workers. But are we first distinguished by how much we love each other? Here's a few questions we can ask ourselves today. First, do we even know the people we're serving? Do we actually know each other? It's appropriate that we're talking about love on Valentine's Day. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that everyone at church is supposed to be your Valentine. It's not a romantic love, of course. But maybe we can take one page from the Dating Couples Playbook and realize that loving someone starts with getting to know them. 
Couples in love know the point is to get to know each other, and that's not just true for dating, but well into marriage. We husbands ought to know our wives, their likes and dislikes, what makes them tick, their preferences, their struggles, their joys, their needs. Likewise, in the church, love begins with getting to know each other. As Zoe grows in size, the way we keep the church feeling small is by not giving up on getting to know people. It's not time to seal off our cliques because they've reached maximum size. Perhaps love your neighbor as yourself could be applied. Love your visitors as your inner circle. If you're new, join and attend a community group. For all of you, find out where people are from, what they like to do, what their background is, what they're all about, how they're doing spiritually. Learn their kids' names. Getting to know each other is the first step to loving well. Another question to ask yourself, am I serving out of love? Am I serving because I love others or is it something else? Obligation, duty, habit, because I was asked, because I want to impress others? 1 Corinthians 13, which is the famous love chapter, is not actually a standalone treatise on love. It comes between chapters 12 and 14, which are all about using our spiritual gifts to serve the body. And the reason Paul pauses in chapter 13 to talk about love is because without love, he says, none of those things matter. We are nothing, even if we serve, even if we have the most amazing spiritual gifts, the most desirable ones, and even if we use those gifts to actively serve within the church, even if you have gifts and use them without love, All our gifts and service are worthless. That's how important love is when it comes to serving. You can choose to serve, to volunteer your time and skills to serve the church, teach children's ministry, play on the worship team. But if you don't do it out of love, all of that service is for naught. That's why we have to start here. If we want to get service right, we have to get love right. The foundation of all meaningful service in the church must be love. One more question. Am I stretching out in love? Is my love outstretched to others? Now the question isn't, am I stretched thin enough? The last thing we want is for someone to be overcommitted or burned out. That isn't our desire for you. And if you're feeling that, let us know. We long to give you some rest. That's why Eric is on sabbatical. We don't want the quality of your ministry to suffer because you're doing too much. And we definitely don't want you to neglect your wife and family or other God-given priorities because you filled your schedule with church. It doesn't honor God to be stressed or anxious about all your ministry commitments. In fact, that is sin. Also, we don't want you to be in children's ministry every single week and never be able to make it to the actual uh, service. We hope no one has to clean up every week and never be able to fellowship after church. When I was in college for our Bible study... My junior and senior year, I served doing transport, setup, and cleanup of the sound and video systems, which we had to store in someone's apartment and then truck over to the the lecture hall, set up, and then tear down, bring it back. And so though our our Bible study was from 7 to 9 p.m. on Friday nights, my serving started at 5 and ended at 11. And as a result, since I was working all those hours, I missed out on all the fellowship time that happened before and after and during the Bible study when people grabbed dinner before or grabbed a late night snack together afterwards, every week. And sure, I was a very faithful servant, but I knew nobody. By the time I was a senior, I knew none of the freshmen and none of the sophomores because I had been doing this for two years. 
I did it because it was fun and I enjoyed the techie stuff and I thought I was serving God well and being really devoted and faithful. But I was not loving everyone, maybe anyone. And I missed out on a lot. Stretching yourself thin is the opposite of an outstretched love. An outstretched love is about earnestness, fervency. It's depth, not breadth. We should serve because we actually care deeply and have compassion for others. So, for example, if you do children's ministry, it should be because you love the parents and want to help them to be able to worship undistracted. It should be because you actually love teaching the kids about God and loving His Word, and you want to help the little children come to Jesus. It should be because you love Nancy and Tiff, and it would just really help them out. Only when we serve out of love for one another will any of our service and ministry truly matter. 1 Corinthians 16.14 says, Let all that you do be done in love. Love is the root, the heart of everything we do. That said, Peter follows his first one another with two more. The next is hospitality. Hospitality is the attitude of earnest love. The attitude of earnest love. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The Greek word for hospitality is philoxenos, which literally means a friend of strangers. A friend of strangers, a friend to guests. In this script, in scripture, excuse me, this word is only used elsewhere twice in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which are both passages that speak on the qualifications of elders. That the church elder must be hospitable. But here Peter expands the quality to be true, not just of the leaders, but of the entire church. Everyone in the church must be hospitable to each other. That is, just as the elders are to welcome people into the church and into our homes, so are all of you to be welcoming each other. We are to embrace one another, inviting each other into our lives, sharing with one another, growing in depth of relationship, and having true community in getting together outside of Sundays. The attitude of welcoming others can be viewed on two fronts. One is welcoming the outsider. The outsider. This is normally what we think about when we say welcome. We want to be a welcoming church. I'm so encouraged that from the beginning, hospitality has been a big part of Zoe's culture and identity across the board, not just the elders, but all of you. It's been kind of a thing, in fact, at Zoe, that you'll get invited over to someone's house pretty much or pretty soon after you start coming. People have even said that it's really intimidating to be so warmly welcomed in this way, because once you actually join the church, you feel obligated to reciprocate so many people's invitations. But you know, that's a really great thing to be a mark of the church. We want to continue to be a church where anyone who enters our doors is made to feel seen, heard, and known. That we are truly happy that they are here with us, and that we want to get to know them. Behind all of this again is love. We need to love everyone who comes in, no matter who they are or how different they are from us. Of course, some visitors don't want to be seen, heard, or known. It's not uncommon in the church today, not uncommon in our area, where people would rather be anonymous, sneaking in and sneaking out. They're here just to check church off of their checklist, not to actually get to know people. And in that case, it's harder because we wonder whether it's more loving to pursue them or more loving to let them go in peace because that's what they prefer. Honestly, I'd say it's better to try to make that connection. Because as we saw earlier, love reaches out to others. Maybe it'll be awkward, and you'll definitely have to meet them at their comfort level if they're not willing to divulge much. 
but pursuing and reaching out to the outsider is a way that the church demonstrates that we are disciples of Christ, who himself reached out to the lost, the outcast, the broken, and the lowly. And the thing about taking strangers into our church and even to our homes is that Hebrew says by doing so, some have even entertained angels unawares. We're not going to unpack that. It's kind of a strange thought. But if you think that's strange, consider this. Jesus said in the future, at judgment, Christ the King will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And the people will ask him, when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink or naked and clothe you? And the king will say, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least, one of the least of these, you did it to me. The other side of the coin is welcoming the insider, those within the church. And Peter is on this wavelength because he is writing this letter to Christians. He is writing this letter to the church and telling them to welcome one another. It's possible that he's talking about itinerant preachers and missionaries or just fellow believers on a journey because in their culture, Christian travelers would rely on the kindness of local believers for food and lodging wherever they went. But in a broader sense, we can think of hospitality as the larger Christian community simply meeting needs. Knowing and meeting needs for each other out of love and compassion. Because brothers and sisters, whether you know it or not, within our own walls right now, there are those who are struggling with rent or with debt or even with staying warm in this cold snap. For different reasons, people might need help with meals or with groceries. Some in our church are sick or injured, some acute from accidents, others suffering chronically and silently. Others are suffering loss or a burden, joblessness, or are just overwhelmed with the troubles of life. The attitude of earnest, outreaching love means being hospitable to these kinds of needs and more, knowing them and meeting them where you are able. We preached Titus 3.14 just a short while ago in our Titus series, but what Paul says there aligns perfectly with Peter. He says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Now we said that with each one another there is a how, and the how here is at the end of verse 9, without grumbling without grumbling. I think we all can understand how easy and natural even it is to grumble even while we're being gracious. Because anytime you welcome a guest into your home and give of yourself, it is always an imposition, as beloved as they might be. Even if you've invited them and you want them to be there, they are still encroaching on your space and time. That's just what it means to be hospitable. There's always something else you could be doing. There's always something you're giving up, whether it's your lifestyle, your schedule, your freedom your dietary preferences, or cleanliness, or your kids' routines and bedtimes. Now, I take a risk saying all this today because both my parents and my in-laws will be staying with us within the next month, and they're all listening to this sermon. But these are, frankly, the types of things that change when you have people over. Now, my parents and in-laws are more than welcome, and we love for them to come and stay with us. But the fact just is there, or the, the fact just is, there is always sacrifice involved when you open your doors to others. And that's fine. And it's great. And it's no big deal because we love them and we want them here. So we will give of ourselves. To be hospitable without grumbling means to do these things gladly, not tiring of it, not complaining. 
It means making sacrifices, but bearing those sacrifices for their sake because you love them. It goes back to the earnestness of love. Hospitality might require you to stretch your comfort levels, your budgets, or even your patience. But are we willing to give in those areas for the sake of extending a welcoming, hospitable love to others? You see, one of the biggest roadblocks to an attitude of hospitality is a heart of selfishness, a heart of pride. It is pride that looks at a person who is in dire need and says, I don't need to help them. They got themselves into this mess. They need to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. It is selfishness that says, I have better things to do with my time and my money and my resources. I have something else on my schedule. But as we'll come to see in the next point, it's not your time or your money or your resources or your schedule. It's all God's and it's all meant to be stewarded. The antidote to this mentality, of course, is humility. To think less of ourselves and more of others. Not only that, but in humility, we must actually count others as more significant than ourselves, Philippians 2. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Why? Because then and only then will we be emulating the example that Christ our Savior set before us. Where he himself emptied himself and took on the form of a servant the form of a human, in order to be humbled to death on the cross, not for his sake, but for ours. Jesus came indeed as the servant to all, to serve the sick, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the unclean, the demon-possessed, the outcast, the prostitute, the tax collector, the sinner. Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christ's example leads us to the third and final point, the last one another. We are to serve one another. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If hospitality is the attitude of genuine love, service is the action of genuine love. The action of genuine love is service. Serving is a privilege an opportunity for us to live out our faith in action. It puts hands and feet on what we believe. As James 2 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Galatians 5.13 says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The freedom we have received in Christ is a freedom not to do whatever our hearts desire but a freedom to follow our new heart's desire, to serve one another in love. Christ did not die to give us an opportunity for the flesh to continue in sin, but an opportunity for faithful service to continue in obedience and sacrifice. You know, the biblical understanding of service really flies in the face of how our culture defines service. For one, this world approaches service from a consumer mentality. In a culture where service and hospitality are entire industries in which many of you, including myself, have made our careers, our idea of serving is that those who serve will either make or break our consumer experience, that the customer is always right, and the success of the service is completely contingent on the satisfaction of the customer. And this consumer-oriented mentality seeps in from our culture and infiltrates the church. And so people approach church the same way they approach dining at a restaurant or visiting a salon or vacationing at a resort. 
We expect the church to cater to us, to bend to our whims, to meet our needs. When we come to a church, we want to be loved, welcomed, and served. Now, did you catch that? Those three key words. We want to be loved, welcomed, and served. Now, those were the three points of our sermon today. Those are the three one another's of Peter's here, chapter 4. And yet, we have turned them on their heads. It's not exactly wrong to want those things from a church, because that's what a church is called to be. Peter says the healthy church should love, welcome, and serve, so you should expect, in a healthy church, to be loved, welcomed, and served. Great! The problem is, you're not just the consumer. You are the church. These exact things that you'd expect from a church are the things that the church should expect of you. And if you're not demonstrating love, if you're not showing hospitality, if you're not extending yourself in service, then we have to ask ourselves, Are we even part of the church? The second way that a biblical understanding of service reverses the secular definition is that instead of being bottom-up, bottom-up, it's top-down. In the world, servants serve upward. The server occupies the bottom-most rung, and we serve up. The associate serves the supervisor. The supervisor serves the manager. The manager serves the director. The director serves the VP. The VP serves the CEO. It goes up the chain of command. But in God's economy, everything is flipped on its head. It's reversed. Jesus says that the leader must be as the one who serves. Jesus says that the one who is to be first and the greatest must be the servant of all. Unlike the business world, in the church of God's people, those at the top aren't the most served. Those at the top serve the most. Or they should because they should follow the example of the Savior, our Lord who bent down to wash the feet of his disciples. I mentioned that my career is in the service hospitality industry. Uh, I'm not an employee of the church. I have uh, another job. I'm a lay elder here. Um, But for the last 15 years, I've worked for a very successful gourmet dessert brand. And we have a limited number of storefronts in high-end markets nationwide. And we've had some executive turnover over the years, but the best CEO, in my opinion, that we've had, aside from the founder, of course, was a woman named Julie. And what struck me most about Julie was not her business acumen or her vision for the company, but what I observed she would do. She was willing to be one of us. And I don't even mean one of us because I was actually on the corporate side too, but in the stores, I would often see her doing things you wouldn't expect a CEO to do. I'd sometimes be in our Beverly Hills location doing IT stuff, fixing things, and Julie would come in for one reason or another. But if she wasn't in her meeting, if she was early or if she was staying late, she'd always find something to do. Of course, as a CEO, she wasn't trained on the register. She wasn't uh, authorized to bake or to frost our products. So what she would do is grab a broom and sweep or go to the front of house to empty out the trash or just go and talk to the customers in line, who just assumed she was a lowly greeter. They had no idea they were talking to the CEO of the company. And that made a big impression on me. Julie, in my opinion, was the best CEO because nothing was beneath her when it came to serving the company, its employees, and its customers. Now, Julie has moved on and is actually today the president of Taco Bell, globally. And I'm really happy for her success, and I I can see why she's there. But I guarantee you, if I saw her in a Taco Bell today, I wouldn't be surprised still if she were sweeping the floor 
or emptying the trash. And that's the difference. I don't know many people, including myself, who would willingly sweep the floor of a Taco Bell unless it was explicitly part of my job description. And that's really where we might be getting it wrong. To be great, you must be the least. The leader must be as the one who serves. And so now we get to the how. How, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As good stewards, the key to service is stewardship. Stewardship, simply put, is management of something that isn't yours, but has been entrusted to you. Jesus told multiple parables involving stewards, including the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, which was our scripture reading today. Three servants in this parable were entrusted with different amounts of their master's money to invest and take care of while he was away. And the first two stewarded or managed the money well, getting back positive gains for their master, while the third buried his money in the ground and returned it in one piece, of course, but without anything more to show for it. This parable shows us by that master's response to these men that there really are only two outcomes for how we choose to steward God's gifts to us. We will either be called a good and faithful servant and enter into his joy, or we will be condemned as a wicked and slothful servant. The consequences are serious. So what about us? What does this parable teach us about how we are to serve as stewards? Well, for one, being a steward means that we start off with something that is not our own. That's why 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift. Just as the master assigned his money to his servants, we have each received gifts from God that we are to use in his service. What we are to steward, verse 11, is God's varied grace. These grace gifts are the same spiritual gifts that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, the ones we are to use in love. 1 Corinthians 12 4 to 7 says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God has given us by His Spirit unique abilities and skills, different from each other, but all for the same purpose, for the common good, for the building up of the body in love. The biblical illustration of the body of Christ being like a human body which is made of many members, many parts, is apt. In the church, we all have different functions, assigned by God's choice and arranged as God intended. There are feet and hands and eyes and ears and noses, each with their own function, none less important than the other, but all working together and caring for one another. We each, in our own unique way, are able to strengthen and edify the congregation. Some are gifted to teach and shepherd, others to encourage, others to give generously, others to visit the sick or imprisoned, others to feed the hungry, some to plan and others to execute, some to lead from the front, others to work behind the scenes. But we are all stewards of God's varied grace for the sake of others. We also need to realize that all our work is done on God's behalf. As stewards, we have been entrusted by God to manage His affairs, doing work, as it were, on his behalf. We get this idea from verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Here Peter distinguishes two types of gifts, speaking and serving, or words and actions. 
but both are the same. Whoever speaks, speaks on God's behalf with his words. And whoever serves, serves on God's behalf with his strength. It is God speaking, as it were, through us, and God acting, as it were, through us. All of it is empowered by God. Brothers and sisters, this should be an encouragement to you when serving gets hard. We said earlier that serving will cost you. It requires our time, energy, resources, sometimes our comfort, even our rights and our reputations. And yet if we are truly supplied by God and empowered by His indwelling Holy Spirit, then no matter the cost, we can rely fully on God's strength. We can persevere through His power. Even when serving becomes tiresome, thankless, and draining, God gives us more grace. And verse 11 closes with a reminder that it is not about us. All this is not about us because it is God's gift, God's grace, and God's strength, and it's also all for God's glory. Peter concludes, In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end goal of a heart of love, an attitude of hospitality, and the action of service is that God gets all the glory. Sadly, it's easy for us to be tempted to serve for the wrong reasons, namely for our own glory. I've lived this. When I first learned guitar back in high school, I was self-taught, learned in private. I didn't let anybody know that I was learning. And I hid my ability to play for a few years while I got better and better until I thought I was good enough. And then on a mission trip of all things to Mexico, I busted it out to the surprise of all my high school peers. And all the girls were like, James, I didn't know you played guitar. And of course, 15-year-old boys love that kind of attention. It felt great. But looking back, it was totally prideful and selfish. God got no glory in any of that because the glory was all mine. We love receiving the recognition of man. We are motivated by praise, position, prestige, or power. We want to be important, significant, indispensable heroes in what we do. And all of that robs God of His glory. The final end of all a Christian's acts should be God's glory. Everything we do is to be done for the glory of God, including and especially using His gifts that He's given to us by His grace and giving us His strength to do for His own purposes. Of course, it should and must be for His glory. We're going to land the plane here, hopefully with the right bearing. As we close, I'd be remiss if I didn't address some reasons we might give for not serving. It's so easy for us to make excuses. We say, I would do more for God if I had, and fill in the blank. If I only had more time, if things weren't so busy, if only I had more disposable income, more square footage in my apartment, maybe when my kids are older. The problem is when we dwell on what we lack, like money, time, skill, and resources, and we think we need those things to be effective, Because if we didn't have them, it cripples us and we absolve ourselves then from our God-given responsibility to serve. The truth, though, is that your God-given responsibility to serve comes packaged with God-given gifts to serve with and God-given strength to serve by. So instead of dwelling on what you wish you had in order to serve, you need to stop and think of what God has given you already. He's not asking you to wait and be faithful later with what may or may not come. He's asking you to be faithful right now with what He's graciously given, even if it's not much, 
even if he has assigned to you little, be faithful with little, that he might say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. For example, speaking as a married person and a parent of two children, I can totally understand Paul right now in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, I love my wife and kids, don't get me wrong, but I also have a new appreciation for how I should have used my singleness better. But this is the kind of thing you don't think about while you're at that stage. So I want to encourage those of you who are waiting, not just the single people, anyone who is waiting for the next thing. If you're waiting for the next promotion, if you're waiting for the bigger house, if you're waiting for marriage and the kids, if you're waiting for retirement, whatever, those are all good things you can use for God's glory. And it's good you're making plans and desiring to steward those things when they come. But also, you need to be faithful in the little things now first. If you're not faithful in the little things now, chances are you're not going to be faithful when those bigger things come, if they come at all. How can you steward what you have today? Brothers and sisters, if you are not serving, my fear is that you might not understand the heart of God. That our God is a loving, generous, giving God who came to serve and whose spirit is now within us to change our hearts. And if our hearts are now like his, we should have that heart as well. If you're not serving, you might not understand his purpose or yours. Why has God saved you? Why has God gifted you? Why has he placed you in this church? You're here for a reason. And until you serve that purpose and steward your gifts, your experience here at Zoe, and dare dare I say, as a Christian, will be unfulfilled. Fulfill your ministry. My hope for each of you today and for all of Zoe is that this message will serve to stir us up together to love and good works. Love being the foundation, the heart of service. Hospitality being the attitude of that love. And good works being the service. Sorry, the good works of service being the action. Let us, as the body of Christ, stretch out in true love for one another, for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we pray for the fresh conviction of Your Spirit. We thank you for all of the faithful servants that we have at Zoe and for sustaining us for these five years. It's all by your grace and you've gifted us in so many ways and equipped us. We pray that we would not squander that, that we would soberly assess how we're doing. And some of us are doing well and and motivated brightly. And we pray that you would help us to excel and exceed what we are doing and to, to, to be faithful all the more and encourage others to do so as well. Some of us are, are floundering. Maybe we just have realized that we are serving for the wrong reasons. And that's not to say that we should quit, but that we should check our hearts and repent, humble ourselves before you, and then start serving for the right reasons. And some of us aren't serving at all. Maybe we're new, and that's okay too. I know there's a lot of restrictions at Zoe in terms of what non-members are uh, able to do. But we pray that you would help us all to seek opportunities to love one another, even if it's not in official capacity, without a title that we would serve one another with what you have given us. So open our eyes to those things. Lord, remind us of Exodus 35, where the tabernacle plans had been given and it was about to be constructed and an offering was uh, was put out for uh, to collect uh, the, 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 the things, the supplies needed to build the tabernacle and all the materials were acquired through the people giving free will offerings. And Exodus 35 says that these offerings came 
out of two things, a willing heart and a moved spirit. And so we pray now, Heavenly Father, that you would give each of us listening a willing heart to serve and that your spirit would move in us, that we would have a moved spirit to want to go forth and do. We thank you so much, God. We don't want to presume that we have five years more, but we long that as long as our church is here and until you return, that you would help us to be faithful for your name's sake and for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.